Outdoor show powered by Dallas Safari Club. I'm Cable Smith. Thank you so much for being here today. Thanks to Lone Star Beer and Hoff Power Players as well. It is great to be here talking, hunting, fishing, the great outdoors, and all that implies with you fine folks. So thanks for uh, making it a point to spend a part of your week with me. I do appreciate it. And we've got a good one lined up for you here today. We're not going to waste any time. So, you know what to do. Pull up that stool a little closer to the old campfire. Pour yourself another cup of coffee out of that beat-up old Stanley Thermos, the one granddaddy passed down to you years ago. Because off the top, we're going to get things started with a lion tail cougar story, <laughs> if you will, from a part of Texas where, historically, these cats haven't shown up. That is the Abilene area. So, yeah, there's been, and we actually had a, a story about a month ago about a South Texas cat that was caught. Um, a couple fellas were out calling predators in Taylor County recently and called in a 150-pound tom. Uh, and I think that the last time a mountain lion was seen in that area was like 50-something years ago, a confirmed sighting. Uh, so they continue to expand their range and increase their numbers here in the Lone Star State, and we will have Aaron Geddes and Tyler Terrell on to talk about that once-in-a-lifetime hunt and how it played out. Then we're going to spend quite a bit of time breaking down this CWD scare that has been put out there recently on social media by leading uh, public land advocacy groups, Texas Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, for instance, and the Hunt Real Deer campaign, which initially was put out there to vilify high-fence hunting, high-fence ranches of any kind, uh, after the backlash, which was immediate and fierce, they crawfished into making it about CWD. Uh, I've then seen other, let's just call them industry leaders, making CWD-related posts. So I want to know, is the CWD thing valid? Because I have my doubts, not going to lie. Should we be monitoring it? Yes. Is it this red herring that's ultimately going to wipe out all of our cervid herds? I have a hard time believing that. I mean, we already have EHD and blue tongue and anthrax, and they haven't wiped out our deer herds. So why is everyone trying to tell me that CWD is going to? I don't know. Uh, but... I know a couple people who have a grasp on that situation in our Texas Parks and Wildlife. Whitetail Program Leader Alan Kane and also TPWD Chief Veterinarian Dr. Bob Dittmar. So that's what we're going to get into coming up at the bottom of the hour. I don't know if they're going to agree with my stance or not, but we're going to find out. Um, because when I look across the Texas landscape, there hasn't been an outbreak. So either it's not the threat that everyone makes it out to be, or Texas Parks and Wildlife is doing a good job containing it, managing it. But anyway, uh, we're going to 
pull back the curtain, dive in deep, and hit on all things CWD. Uh, so that's what's coming up here at the bottom of the hour. It's going to be a good one. Guarantee you that. It's going to be interesting. I'm probably going to learn a lot of stuff today. Hope you guys do as well. Uh, a couple other things to mention. Let's do a quick giveaway. I've got a Vortex Topo Map long sleeve t-shirt. It's uh, one of my favorites in the rotation right now. If you like hunting the backcountry like I do, then pouring over Topo Maps, trying to find those dark uh, benches and saddles where those big bulls like to bed down. Uh, that's something that you're probably passionate about, and this shirt sums it up. <laughs> so uh, I've got one. We'll throw in a Vortex hat as well. Just email the word Vortex to Lone Star Outdoor Show at gmail.com, and you're entered to win this week's Vortex giveaway. Let's take a break. Up next, we'll be joined by a couple fellas who recently called in a big old male cougar right here on the Lone Star Outdoor Show. British Columbia is world-renowned for its beauty and wildlife, and Vancouver Island is revered as a magical place by hunters. Vancouver Island Coastal Bear Adventures specializes in taking mature trophy black bears with 18-inch minimum skulls in the 6.5 to 7.5-year range. They also have Roosevelt elk tags and only take Boone and Crockett bulls each fall. 60% of their guiding area is located on private land. So whether you're looking for a Boone or black bear, once-in-a-lifetime Roosevelt elk, or a giant cougar, They've got the hunt for you. Visit VancouverIslandBearHunt.com to book your hunt today. That's VancouverIslandBearHunt.com. Howdy, folks. I'm Lee Hoffbear for Hoffbear's Outdoor Superstore in Gulfway, Texas. I hope you're enjoying the Lone Star Outdoor Show. We've been a title sponsor for a number of years now, and we're proud to be a part of it. I'd also like to thank you for making Hoffbear's once again the number one Polaris dealer in Texas. In the market for a compact track loader, then check out the Bobcat Advantage, where Bobcat track loaders squared off against other brands in a variety of tests and challenges. Whether you're looking for performance advantages, uptime protection, or quality design, Bobcat compact track loaders are the best built machines in the industry. But don't take our word for it. Watch the videos at BobcatAdvantage.com or see Bobcat machines in person at Bobcat of North Texas in Louisville, Fort Worth, Cedar Hill, Longview, McKinney, Paris, and Sherman. Visit BobcatOfDallas.com today. Cable Smith, welcome everybody back to the Lone Star Outdoor Show. Brand new one there from Jordan Canales, Wolf Hunter, the name of that one. Thank you guys for being here today. Thanks to Dallas Safari Club, our title sponsor, as well as Lone Star Beer and Hoff Power Polaris. Um, we're about to get into a little cougar conversation, but before we do that, this segment of the presentation proudly brought to you by Vortex Optics and the Fury HD range-finding binocular. You know, sometimes less is more, and by that I mean less gear. If you could cut out one piece from your kit or your pack, why wouldn't you do it? And that's what's so great about the Fury is it combines your bino and your rangefinder into one. You can find it 
at vortexoptics.com. Uh, well, let's go ahead and bring on our first guest today, Aaron Geddes and Tyler Terrell, joining us from Taylor County, Texas. Guys, I'm looking forward to hearing about this big old Tomcat. Thanks for being here. Appreciate it. Absolutely. Thanks for having us. Yes, sir. Thank you. My pleasure. So uh, tell me a little bit about yourselves. I know that uh, this hunt that we're going to discuss played out in Taylor County. Uh, I've done a little bit of, of uh, hunting over the years around Buffalo Gap, um, Tuscola, so not too far from you guys. But uh, is that where is that where you guys originally are from? I am originally from Anson, yes, sir. It's about 25 miles north of Abilene. Okay. And then uh, I am originally from New Braunfels, Texas. And, and Aaron's from New Braunfels, okay. Yes, sir. Right on. So you guys are out hunting a family property there in Taylor County. And it, um, just based off of the Instagram post that I was, uh, I guess your brother actually alerted me to, to this, uh, Aaron. But yeah, you all mentioned that you were out trying to thin out coyotes. Um, it's It's about to be fawning time you know and and right now through the spring is really the best time of the year uh for trying to manage coyotes and, and that's exactly what you guys were doing correct yeah we, we we had been you know all throughout deer season when we were out there you know we'd hear them all throughout the night early in the mornings when we'd be out hunting in the evenings rise the sun go down they'd be they'd be loud you know all through the night they'd wake you up while you were sleeping and so we after deer season, we went, man, we just really need to to go thin out some coyotes. They're out here thick. Mm-hmm. And so that was that was the main objective. So you grabbed the uh, electronic predator call and and off you guys went. Yep, exactly. And have you guys had much experience predator hunting in the past? I used to uh, guide for a professional hunter, you could say. Okay. For a few years, about two years myself, uh, and then. Started guiding hunts on a, a game ranch for a guy. So Tyler has a lot of experience doing it, to say yeah, the yeah. least. And then I, I, I hadn't done it professionally like Tyler has, but I've done it for myself for years. Uh huh. It's awesome. I mean, really, I wish I did more of it. Uh, I have a, you know a couple electronic calls and have even called in a couple with a, with a hand you know hand call mouth call I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's nothing more rewarding, you know, when you, when you see that, that coyote pop up. And I remember the last one, I, I, same deal. I was at the deer lease, she had shot a buck and started put the, uh, put the Fox pro out and started calling. And when, you know, the damn thing came in 30 yards and just looking at me from over my right shoulder yep. <laughs> before you could get the gun <laughs> turned around, he's, oh yeah, he, the gig's up, you know, they're smart. So, yeah, oh, yeah. uh, when you do take one, it's, uh, it's, it's pretty awesome. So, had you guys had any luck with the coyotes on this particular evening? No, we had not. We'd actually, so we had made two sets. We were in the middle of our second set. Uh-huh. Um, we did a we did a first set for about 25, 30 minutes, and nothing came in. Moved spots and started our second set. Um, and again, this was the line ended up being the only thing that we saw that night. Huh. Wow. And so, how long? Uh, and this is for for Tyler, um, since you have done this quite a bit what, what is the average amount of time that you'll wait before you you give up on a stand if i'm hunting coyotes mm-hmm. my particular wait time for a coyote is 10 to 20 minutes normally coyotes come in a whole lot faster than any sort of cat whether it be lions or bobcats and a bobcat i'll you know i'll wait 30 to 45 minutes as long 
Mm-hmm. My longest time for a bobcat. For lying, I can't tell you much about it. That's my <laughs> first one to officially call in in my life. Yeah. But it happened quick. So I don't think many people can uh, provide a lot of insight on calling in a mountain lion. It has been done, uh, obviously, uh, but uh, those instances seem to be few and far between, and and quite frankly, more of a byproduct of of trying to call in a coyote or a bobcat. Um, it, but going back to what you said about coyotes, like in some places, if I have a lot of opportunity to make multiple stands, if it's ten minutes, fifteen minutes, I'm I'm done because it seems like ninety yes, percent of the time they're there in the first three or four minutes. Yes, sir. Mm-hmm. On the coyotes, anyway. Um, so no luck that evening. And I think Tyler just as a joke turns on, tell me the sound that you, you turned, that that you decided to to play and, and what you said to Aaron prior to firing it up. Well, I'm going to take it back just a few more steps. I was actually, I was actually in the shooting. I was supposed to be the shooter. Oh, wow. And we had called for 30 minutes on this one particular stand and, you know, had no luck at all. Me kind of being a wimp, I wasn't prepared for the cold, you could say. Uh, I handed the gun to Aaron, and I started messing with the Fox Pro Alpha Dog. And, you know, Aaron's looking through the thermal, and I'm messing with it. I was like, how f-? I said, I'm going to play the lion call, just being a smart aleck. Mm-hmm. And the Fox Pro Alpha Dog has a lion call built into it, and I just selected the first call down. And, you know, it just, it just says mountain lion call, I think, numeral one. Uh, and I let that play for about 10 seconds and Aaron picked up a set of eyes underneath this oak tree about 75 yards from us and uh, man it was at that time I don't I just you know just going through the sounds didn't really think anything of it I just switched it to that female lion call and that was when I saw the flicker of the tail kind of through the thermal overlooking Aaron's shoulder and I announced that I thought it was a lion but no, you don't expect to call on a lion, nor do you, you know, ever hear about seeing one in this part of Texas. And, you know, I'm not going to say that it was shot down and vetoed, but, you know, there was some doubt in, in everybody's mind. And, you know, Aaron said, yeah, it's probably just a big coyote, you know, being on a game ranch. And uh-huh. uh, so I just kind of, that thought just left my mind. I didn't ever go to, you know, think of, you know, what else would come into a lion call? Right. You, know, you wouldn't expect a a coyote or a, a pig and but it was just in so much doubt of thinking you would ever in your lifetime call in a mountain lion you know that that's what it would be you guys had at least one thermal or or did you have two did somebody have a monocular uh no we just had the one on the gun okay and so who and so who saw the who saw the lion who had the gun and who saw the cat then um, so I had the gun and I had seen the eyes, um, but the, the thermal we were using has a screen display uh-huh. over top of the scope so we could both see it at the same time. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. And and that's when uh, Tyler said he thought it, he saw he thought he saw a tail flicker. Right. And so, you know, you, on, a, on a lion or like, uh, you know, like a house cat, you, their tail kind of curls up as they walk. Yeah. And that's what we had both noticed about it. And Tyler goes, so that's a lion. And I was like, you know, just, you know, being so unexpected, I was like, dude, there's no way, like, that's not a lion, like, no, it's, you know, it's a cat, it's a, it's a big coyote, just walking funny, or the way it turned, it just looked like it, um, you know, just thinking it was a coyote still coming into the other call, it was just being slow, mm-hmm. um, mm. and wow. then it kind of, it, it, it kind of dropped down below some brush, 
and then we, we kind of talked about it again, and then it popped back up about 50 yards. Um, and this female mountain lion uh, call is still going. Yeah, but I mean, but this happened. I mean, this was within you know 30 seconds. Oh wow! It, 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 long, it was not like it wasn't like a several minute deal. I mean, it was just like you know, it was bang bang. So interesting. Um, I wonder, and no one will ever know the answer to this, but it's 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 uh, fascinating to ponder whether this cat was coming into whatever you were playing previously. Did that like sparked its, its interest, or if it was there the whole time and didn't really give a crap until you you started playing that that female cougar. You know, I I had thought about that. You know, you know, in hindsight, looking back at, it, I was like, I wonder if it was coming into our cottontail distress call, uh-huh. and it just, you know, it just, you know, we just dumb luck and started playing the mountain lion call, and then really piqued its interest, or if it was even more dumb luck that it just happened to be walking by at the time we played it, and then it just, you know, turned and beelined toward us. But, yeah. You know, like you said, we'll you know, we'll never know. Yeah. So was it actually like? How quickly was the cat coming to the call? Uh, it, I mean, it was coming pretty – I mean, it closed from, from the time we saw it at 75, 100 yards to when I had shot at about 50. I mean, it was probably 25, 45 seconds. Okay, so it's coming. But, yeah. Yeah. And what caliber uh, were you guys shooting? Uh, I was using a 223. Wow, okay. So this cat ended up weighing 150 pounds. That's a relatively small caliber for something of that size. Where did you end up? putting the crosshairs um it was right at the base so when i shot it it was facing towards me so i shot it right in the right in the base of the neck middle of the chest uh-huh and then aaron where did the where did the cat go from there or did he just tump over fell over dead <laughs> perfect oh that's the best no tracking job luckiest shot in the world <laughs> uh, right right so what happens next i want to get the emotional reaction out of you guys describe it as as much as you could i mean this is a holy s moment i'm sure neither one of you as no predator hunter calling uh, cats in you know west uh we'll just call it west central texas no one's expecting to call in a mountain lion there so what do you what do you guys say what happens at that point yeah so we uh you know we, we we turned on the lights and turned on the mule and we pulled up to it and then you know when the lights hit it you know it was, you know you realize it is a mountain lion uh, and there's probably a good, I don't know what, like five minutes where we just really didn't know what to do. <laughs> just kind of like, we kind of looked at it. We were both freaking out. We hugged. Um, the picture you posted of, of me laying on the ground and Tyler, you know, looking like he's praying or crying. Yeah. It just kind of, you know, I think that picture captured it so perfectly. It's just, it was just, you know, you were, I didn't know what to do. Yeah. Um, you saw one just, old guy's comment on Instagram. He said, what is that guy doing? Is he planking? What are they, what kind of photo are they yeah. setting up here? I was like, man, this looks like to me, the most candid, this is just reality. Like these, these guys can't believe what just happened. Um, yeah, they, that was exactly a great photo. That's exactly what it was. Yeah. yeah. That's exactly what it was. We were just, we hugged. We were both just like, dude, no way. Like just, you know, just freaking out about the whole thing. Mm. Um, and then luckily both of our girlfriends were with us. And so they were the ones, you know, snapping all those pictures. You know, they thought it was great that we were just freaking out like that, you know, like a bunch of high school girls. <laughs> Me and Aaron don't react that way to a lot of things. Yeah. yeah. We don't really get that excited. You know, we've got at the deer hunts. We've seen the 200-inch deer on the ground, and I've seen the bobcats and the coyotes and fox and ringtail cats. And, just, you know, you, all, you get excited to all of it. But when there's something like catching a blue lobster, you know, 
I mean, it's just in a category of its own. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, no doubt about that. And I think you get for, for grown men, you get two exemptions. You get sports exemptions and you get hunting exemptions. Like if your team wins the Super right. Bowl or world series, yeah, it's okay. If you cry a little bit, <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, anything else is a little, is questionable though. So, uh, I totally get it, man. This is a uh, truly incredible. And you guys immediately call the game wardens, um, which I commend you for not that they are going to do anything other than say congratulations. And I, did they come out and look at it? Um, so they didn't come out that night, but they were both. Uh, so we, we called one of them. And I think the other end, the other one ended up finding out about it. Um, but they were just happy that we had called and were going to report it because they ended up calling two state biologists, one for Taylor County and one for the county just west of us. Uh-huh. Um, and then they met us Saturday morning. They took hair samples. They took the tongue for DNA analysis. They took the stomach contents and the intestines. They did full measurements of the skull and of the body. Um, well, we already know what was in the they, stomach. It was full of whitetail. There's no doubt about it. <laughs> oh, I'm sure. Yeah. yeah absolutely. Um, in that part of the world. Um, What's crazy is the, the you know, the kind of area biologist from the Abilene to San Angelo, he actually went to high school with my brother of where I graduated high school at hmm. and got the number from, got our number from my brother because the post went viral on Facebook. Hmm. Wow. Okay. And so, and, and somewhere in all of this, uh, one of these biologists or game warden or somebody told you guys that this was the first sighting confirmed sighting of a mature mountain lion in taylor county in like 50 years or something like that right yeah so that that was the the taylor county biologist her name is annalise um and she was saying that you know there there'd been rumors and you know farmers and ranchers had had them come out and look at you know livestock and horses and goats that had been attacked and you know they can kind of come out and say oh you know well it could have been a mountain lion but we can't say for sure or someone would call them and be like, I saw a mountain lion run across the road. And all they can do is go, well, okay, like, thanks for telling us. Uh-huh. But they don't have, they didn't have any real evidence. And so um, Annalise said that this was the first confirmed evidence of um, a sexually mature mountain lion in Taylor County in over 50 years. It's incredible. Incredible. Yeah. Yeah. So they were, they were both stoked to, to get the DNA and to do their research. Um, you know, from what they said, they know, they know almost next to nothing about mountain lions in Texas and their overall populations and their home ranges and where they actually are just because they're, you know, they're so hard to find and mm-hmm. there are no confirmed sightings and reports and stuff. Yeah. Well, they are showing up more and more, which is people from outside of Texas find that weird because, you know, we don't have a closed season. You can hunt them at night, right. you can trap them, you can do whatever with mountain lions. They're just like a coyote or a bobcat. And sure. yet... Their numbers are going up because more of them are getting yeah, exactly. shot at deer feeders every year. You guys got this one. I've seen at least three or four other ones in South Texas. The hell, we had on my, my friend snared one uh, going back about three weeks ago outside of Laredo. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they are showing up more. And, it, and I think, and Chisholm and I talked about this in detail. It's like in Texas, you can't hunt them with dogs, it's just not an effective way to do it. There's not enough of them. And the right. terrain isn't really... You can't tree them. Yeah. We don't have any snow. And then unless you've got some really good dry ground hounds, uh, it's just impossible. So, right. you know... Sometimes it's... You know, I've been uh, with a guy in New Mexico called Gary Webb. Mm-hmm. And rumors from game wardens up there have told me I've been once with a bear. And my bear's actually been on your post on your Instagram before. And then I went uh, this last 
summer and came up short on my lion hunt. But uh, even with that, I mean, one of the best guides in the state of New Mexico with dogs and different sets of dogs every day and other friends of his going out just trying to find the trail, you know, in, of a seven-day hunt and not go, didn't get on any sign of cat at all. So, uh-huh. I mean, I, I truly think it's got, it, it happens for a reason. Yeah, yeah. Well, my first uh, lion hunt in Colorado, we did dry ground. And the dogs got on one cold trail, and that was pretty much it. And that was like eight days. Then I went back, and we did it in the snow, caught two females, let them go. And then went back a third time. Finally, day number 18, caught my my, my lion on dry ground like uh, I always wanted to do. And I mean, I didn't do right. anything other than follow the dogs, right? I, I had very little to do with <laughs> yeah. anything other than uh, effort of just pulling a trigger. <laughs> the, the houndsmen and the dogs did everything else, and, and the mules, you know, hauled our our butts around the mountains for 18 days so it's pretty awesome to know that their numbers are still though increasing in texas and um, mm-hmm. how much did this one weigh that you guys got it was right at 150 pounds wow that's i mean so that's a big tom anywhere and that is absolutely massive for texas uh no, yeah. no doubt about that so yeah, a 19 inch neck and the biologists around here say normally for texas they'll have a 13 to 14 to 15 inch neck yeah. this one had a whopping 19 wow well, it's like any other animal. The farther north you go, the bigger they get, body size-wise. You know, right. they, they they need it for the harsh winters. And, you know, our Texas mountain lions are, are I mean, not going to lie, a little bit scrawnier than, than those those uh, yes. western cats. So Absolutely. Well, hell of a deal. I'm I'm uh, I'm sure that that Tyler's kicking himself for handing you the gun, Aaron, and because and, uh, <laughs> you're the one that's going to end up with the full body mount, it looks like. So... Yes, sir. <laughs> you know, that night after it happened, and I and sat there in bed, and I got to thinking, you know, like, what if I'd have just held that for five more minutes? Uh-huh. But then, then, I, then again, I also got to think of, you know, if I wouldn't have been the smart aleck that I am, and be, you know, joking wise all the time, and try to make everybody smile, that if I wouldn't have handed that gun off to Aaron, and then started playing with the call, and you know, put it on the line call, and then switch it to the female, like. We would have never killed that cat. Yeah. Who knows? We we might have turned on the light bars to drive to our next spot, but you know, cats don't get killed every day for a reason. Yeah. So, th- yes, I do wish I could have shot it. I'm more tickled for my friend Aaron, you know, to have shot the cat. It's still a once in a lifetime thing to be a part of. But absolutely, honestly, just pr- pr- pretty tickled pink to say that I'm 21 years old and have called in a Texas mountain. <laughs> no doubt about it. There's certainly a, a, a silver lining there, a worthwhile one, no doubt about that. Um, well, guys, thanks so much for jumping on, man. It's uh, it's one of those things when when you see about it, uh, when you see it, and then it's like, ah, oh, this doesn't happen every day, and I figured it was a, a story worth having you guys share with us. So thanks for making time for us. Certainly appreciate it. Oh, thank you, man. I appreciate it. Yes, sir. Thank you for having us. Absolutely. Y'all take care. Yes, sir. You All too. right. So there you have it. And I have never heard of one of those mountain lion calls actually working. <laughs> so learn something new every day. Uh, but damn it, if I'm not going to fire that thing up next time I've got the Fox Pro out. Um, that segment of the show proudly brought to you by Pulsar Thermal Imaging and Night Vision Technology. I just got the new Pulsar Thermion. It's freaking sweet. 30 millimeter tube, so fits with your traditional 30 millimeter uh, rings. And that's great. If you're a bolt gun hunter, I'm actually putting it on a 243 
bolt-action rifle myself. I've got the old trail on uh, on the AR. So anyway, the Thermion is the evolution of thermal technology. It's got all the great features that you've come to expect from Pulsar. Internal recording, all that great stuff. Varied color palette and the best reticle that thermal technology has ever seen. You can find it at PulsarNV.com. Well, let's take a quick break. Up next, it's a comprehensive look at the CWD situation. And we'll do that with Texas Parks and Wildlife's Whitetail Program Leader, Alan Kane, and Chief Veterinarian, Dr. Bob Dittmar, right here on the Lone Star Outdoors Show. Don't leave me hanging out online. Don't leave me hanging out online. In the market for a compact track loader, then check out the Bobcat Advantage, where Bobcat track loaders squared off against other brands in a variety of tests and challenges. Whether you're looking for performance advantages, uptime protection, or quality design, Bobcat compact track loaders are the best-built machines in the industry. But don't take our word for it. Watch the videos at BobcatAdvantage.com or see Bobcat machines in person at Bobcat of Dallas and Louisville, Fort Worth, Cedar Hill, Longview, and now McKinney. Visit BobcatofDallas.com or call 469-586-0000. I'm Craig Boddington. I'd like to invite you to become a member of Dallas Safari Club, one of the world's leading hunting and conservation organizations. As a member, you'll receive Game Trails magazine, a monthly newsletter, and invitations to our monthly meetings and special activities. Join Dallas Safari Club, an international organization based in Dallas, supporting hunting and conservation worldwide. For more information, call 800-9-GO-HUNT or visit our website at www.biggame.org. Are you tired of waking up at 2 a.m. to fight public land skybusters? If you're looking for a thermal hog hunt near DFW, then Three Curl Outfitters has you covered. Offering fully guided thermal hunts just minutes south of Dallas, guide Scout daily to put you on the bacon. Using thermal imaging technology to hunt feeders, crop fields, and river bottoms, you get unlimited hogs and no kill fees. Visit www.3curl.com. Also offering corporate hunts and food and lodging available by request. Book at 3curl.com or call 214 455 Well, we ran pipe from the creek bed through the woods to the old gray shack. It was worth the trouble to work them shovels for granddaddy's sour mastache. All the weeds and pecan trees had a secret we all swore to keep. Well, my granddaddy knew what the law would do if they ever come snooping around down in the gully, a little Brent Cobb bringing us back on the Lone Star Outdoor Show, powered by Dallas Safari Club. Cable Smith here with you today, thanks to Lone Star Beer and Hoff Power Polaris as well. We've got man, we've got an interesting conversation coming up next concerning chronic wasting disease, CWD. What's the deal? Is it truly going to wipe out our native cervid herds like some or at least one organization has been pushing of late i don't know i have a hard time believing that if it was going to do it it already would have especially in places where it's been prevalent for 50 plus years but i digress because i don't have all the information i've looked at the statistics i've looked at the maps i've done the research but to say that i have a an understanding would be uh, wouldn't be fair so i've asked a couple guys who do in the form of texas parks and wildlife 
Chief Veterinarian, Dr. Bob Dittmar, and our Whitetail Program Leader, Alan Kane, to come on and break it down for us. And we're going to do that momentarily. But first, this segment proudly brought to you by Dallas Safari Club, the worldwide leader in big game conservation. They put their money where their mouth is, and they're passionate about honors rights, education, and conservation. For more info, check us out at biggame.org. Now, let's go ahead and bring on a couple guys who are no strangers to the show. It is my pleasure to welcome Dr. Bob Dittmar and Alan Kane back to the program. Appreciate the opportunity. Glad to be here, Cable. Yeah, same here. Absolutely. So recently there's been some propaganda put out by a well-known public land advocacy group that kind of, well, initially it condemned high fences altogether and the hunters who hunt in those scenarios. However, after some instant and I would say substantial backlash, Texas backcountry hunters and anglers uh, shifted the focus of the Hunt Real Deer campaign to a CWD witch hunt, in my opinion. Um, First of all, it was incredibly stupid of them to alienate potential membership in what was their fastest-growing chapter in the country. I personally won't have anything to do with them uh, going forward just because I find it very elitist and divisive. We're losing hunters every day. Our numbers are dwindling, and here's a, a, a group essentially with no skins on the wall in Texas, and they come in and take a crap all over Texas hunting culture. Um, and then once we called them out for the high fence thing, they latched on to this red herring that is CWD and tried to scare people from supporting or agreeing with high fences through the veil of CWD being something that's going to wipe out our servant herds completely. And I don't know, maybe, Bob, you're going to educate me today and tell me, yeah, it is going to wipe out our, our servant herds, and they're right. But, but I don't think that's going to happen. So um, with that being said, uh, I'm going to be open-minded here and just want to get the facts out there. Bob, we'll start with you. Is CWD something you see wiping out our whitetail herd in the future? Maybe it's five years from now or, or 30 years from now. Yeah, I wish my crystal ball could answer that question <laughs> for us. Um, I think the, the the big thing is we, we don't know. Uh-huh. Um, they're, you know, if we look at things nationally, they're, uh, there are places where some population declines have been documented in herds that have had uh, uh, CWD for a long period of time. Uh, in other places, there are populations that are they are still doing pretty well. So I don't I don't I, I don't think we have the answer to that at this mm-hmm. point in time. And uh, don't know. We just know it's a another mortality factor in a deer herd. So it potentially could, but will it wipe out a, a deer population? Uh, don't think we can answer that right now. Okay. So Alan, when was uh, CWD first detected? I believe it was in Colorado back in like the 50s. Is that correct? Yeah, the uh, I believe it was 1967 when they first um, recognized CWD and, and kind of placed it in that category of transmissible spongiform encephalopathies. And then uh, since then, you know, we've seen it throughout the Western states. Over the years, it spread um, mm-hmm. to different states uh, and countries uh, around the around the world so but in texas it wasn't discovered until the summer of 2015 mm-hmm. 
Okay. Actually, in, in ranging deer in 2012. Yeah, that's right, Bob. 2012 free ranging deer. Yeah. Okay. And, and a lot of our free ranging positive tests have been in, in West Texas mule deer. Um, just looking at the stats, which we'll dive into more in a second. But Bob, what is chronic wasting disease? Yeah, that's a, a, another one of those uh, questions to answer. It takes a while, but but as, as Alan said, it's a member of a group of diseases known as transmissible spongiform encephalopathies. And there's a group of these diseases that have been around. Some of them we've known about, like scorpion sheep, for hundreds of years. Uh, bovine spongiform encephalopathy, or mad cow disease, is another. Uh, Crutchfield Yakov disease, CJV disease is uh, uh, transmissible and spongiform encephalopathy of, of humans. And there's a there's a variety of these. There's a mink encephalopathy, and there's some other variations of some of the, the other diseases. They're they're all alike in the lesions they make in the brain, but they're all different in the species they affect mm-hmm. and um, how they're transmitted and what what tissues they're found in. Uh, chronic wasting disease is known to naturally infect some members of the deer or the servant family, and it's white-tailed deer, mule deer, uh, black-tailed deer, elk, moose, uh, psycho deer, uh, and reindeer. Mm-hmm. And um, they they basically create holes or spongy form changes in the brain that that lead to uh, uh, the animal not being able to function. Um, so they're they're Infectious, they're slowly progressive, and they're they're degenerative, and they're they're always fatal. Hmm. And how are they transmitted, or how is CWD transmitted? Um, and, and again, different ones can be transmitted different ways. But with the chronic wasting disease, there there are probably several possibilities of it being transmitted. We uh, we know it's found in a variety of secretions and tissues like urine, feces, uh, other tissues. So it probably can be transmitted directly from animal to animal by those tissues. And then once it's uh, enter, once it enters into the environment, it appears to have the ability to remain infectious and viable for long periods of time. So indirect transmission from the environment is uh, another way it can be transmitted. Uh, it's been found that the prions can bind to uh, soil particles and have been taken up by plants. Uh, we're not exactly sure how that plays into the transmission, uh, but but it, it's been found to remain in the environment for long periods of time. So once the environment becomes contaminated, it's very difficult to eradicate the disease, mm-hmm. if not impossible. So much like anthrax in that aspect of uh, it could be dormant for years and years, and then as long as it's in the environment, it's still a problem? Uh, sort of like that. I mean, anthrax is a, a bacteria. That's uh, one of the things I didn't mention was that uh, we believe uh, these TSEs are, are caused by prion, which is a misfolded protein. Mm-hmm. And those things are very, very difficult to destroy. And uh, most of uh, we, we don't have anything environmentally that will actually inactivate those. Mm-hmm. But yeah, you're, you're right. In, in essence, uh, yeah, it's in, it could be in the soil and, and that could be a source of infection like anthrax can be. Okay. But we know anthrax is caused by bacteria that uh, we have, a, we have you know, a few more ways to control and, and, uh, and uh, uh, treat. Hmm. Well, so let me ask you this. Um, Bob, would you say, or, or Alan, actually, either one of you could take this one, but is a CWD outbreak as devastating as, as say, an EHD outbreak? 
Because I, I know we haven't seen a large-scale CWD outbreak in Texas. Yeah, I, I will uh, take take a shot at that, and Alan can chime in whatever he wants to. Um, you know, with with diseases like EHD, blue sun, uh, anthrax, you have a lot of animals, or, or potentially can have a lot of animals that die uh, very quickly. So you see those animals die, mm-hmm. and, and uh, you know it's very evident. Uh, the issue, particularly with HD, is that there's animals are going to survive, and that population is going to rebound uh, pretty quickly. And, and in Texas, we've had EHD and Bhutan basically forever, so almost all our deer have been exposed at one time or the other. It uh, doesn't mean that we don't have periodic dials from it. Same, same with anthrax, but we do. The thing with... Uh, with uh, chronic wasting disease, it's say the progression is much much slower, so you don't see massive die-offs, uh, and it may take 20 to 50 years for the prevalence to be able to a level that it's readily detected, or that you're actually seeing sick animals from it frequently. Okay, um, Alan, let's talk about some of the uh, statistics here. And do you do you believe that this actually started? in a breeder facility, Alan, or is it possible that um, that's just where it was detected because they were actually testing the animals on site? I mean, is it, I, could this have been around forever, just like EHD? I, I don't think we know, and, and that's just, you know, Bob mentioned early on in the conversation, there's a lot of things we don't know about CBD, and and one is the origin of uh-huh. it. And uh, in, I think the important part for hunters and landowners to understand that the, the disease is out it's here um you know in different areas around the country and in texas it's not everywhere but it's in in areas and it's important that that we try to manage and maintain and, and can contain the disease to where it is so it doesn't spread mm-hmm. uh, and i think that's the important message uh folks need to, to understand sometimes you know when you're you're dealing with a new posit in a new area. If you had a source uh, where it came from, that may help you make management decisions, not only about where the CBD is detected in a particular area, but also where it came from. Um, and, you know, we do epidemiological investigations along with um, Texas Animal Health Commission, at least when we're talking about Texas, and we can trace when we're talking about captive facilities or captive related animals, we, we can trace forward and trace backwards where deer movement occurs um, because we have good records. And so that helps us make good decisions when it comes to uh, managing the disease. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But you, but you kind of skirted that. I mean, um, for me personally, it's like, okay, so here's this breeder facility or, or, there's the captive animals in, in Colorado, this place, and then all of a sudden, boom, CWD. Uh, but we know that deer are herd animals, and they live in close proximity to each other, whether that's in a fence or outside of a fence. Um, they're social animals. So like, just from a casual bystander perspective, like I have a hard time believing all of a sudden CWD just uh, showed up or, or um, took life in this in this one place. I mean, maybe we didn't have the technology or didn't even know what we were looking at, but it's possible that it's been in North America forever. 
there is a possibility, uh, you know, as Alan said earlier, it was first recognized in in the late sixties. Uh, so yeah, we we're not we're not sure what the origin of it was. There's several theories and lots of speculation. Uh, was it uh, an evolution of some other prion disease like scrapie that's been out there? But we really don't know where mm-hmm. it came from. Uh, and you know, right now we're dealing with a coronavirus outbreak in China. You know, we we've had coronaviruses forever, but now all of a sudden we've got a, a virulent coronavirus. That's, uh, Creating lots of stir. Yeah. Um, Ebola virus, kind of the same thing. Now, those are uh, more traditional diseases because, uh, conventional diseases, because we know they're caused by a virus. So, matter of fact, when I was in school back in the in vet school, like in the late 70s, we were still being taught that these uh, TSEs were caused by slow moving viruses. Uh, the prion theory had not, not uh, evolved at that time. Huh. Interesting. Well, you just dated yourself, Bob. So, which I like because that means you, you got an encyclopedia of knowledge. <laughs> so, um, I've been around a while. Uh, Alan, statistics in Texas. Let's talk about that. Uh, free range. Let's talk about the percentage of free range positives versus those that have occurred in breeder facilities. Um, I think going back to that first positive test in 2012, I believe it wasn't a, a free range <laughs> mule deer. To, where are we now? So to, to date, we're up to 167 confirmed positives. Mm-hmm. Um, of that, there are, um, I guess I believe it's 28 uh, free-ranging mule deer, and there is one free-ranging elk, and that's in the panhandle, and then free-ranging whitetail. Um, we are up to let's see, 10, I believe there. And then the we have a, in the captive facility, so in a breeder pen, where we have 111 positives mm-hmm. that, that are associated with captive breeding pens, and then release sites associated with those captive facilities. We've got uh, 14 whitetails, two elk, and one red deer. Okay. And now all of these... These are um, all these tests are post mortem. Is that correct? Yeah, these are all um, post mortem tests. But and I'll let Bob respond to this too. But we do some animortem testing in some of these captive facilities or live animal testing um, is part of their herd plan. And, yeah, uh, some of those were initially detected by an animortem test, and, but but uh, at this point in time, all the ones that he's he's listing have been confirmed. Those deer are dead, and they've been confirmed by postmortem testing. Mm-hmm. Okay, so percentage-wise, that's like um, what seventy-eight, seventy-nine percent are in breeder facilities. That's probably pretty close. Uh-huh. Um, I didn't like add those up, but yeah, it's going to be. Pretty close to that. Okay, so but keep in mind, uh-huh. you know, cable that the, when you've got deer in close proximity in these pens, its transmission rates might be a little higher than it is in a, you know, a free ranging population. Sure, um, where deer aren't confined and exposed to each other mm-hmm. frequently. So, are the the uh, captive facilities being tested? 
more regularly than than these free range deer like what how does that statistically break down how many tests are being done i mean are more are more positives showing up because we're testing more deer and breeder pens i don't know compared so to free range let me give you some just some quick stats uh-huh. uh, and this is through um this year at least for parts of wildlife biology has been sampling for cwd since 2002 and from then till today, we're at about 81,500 samples that we've tested. And then when you look at uh, captive facilities, really since uh, we've got records back at least to 06, um, there's been 36,926 uh, post-mortem tests. Mm-hmm. And then like we mentioned earlier, we do allow anti-mortem testing um, as part of the the rules for the captive facilities, and there's been 30,676 samples. And we have some other <clears throat> permits like Triple T or TTP that, that do testing. There's about about 9,000 of those samples. And then release sites associated with um, captive facilities, there's been about 12,000. So over the, whatever, 18 years or so, we in the state, we've tested about 171,000 deer. Wow. Um, which is a bunch. And, uh, and 100 and how many have come back positive? 100 167 to date. Out of over 170,000. So very small uh, percentage. It would be interesting to see. And, and that's where you, you have to be a little careful this time when you start talking about that. Yeah, when you look at, at 167 out of 100 and. 70-something thousand tests uh, across the state, that's a very low prevalence, but when you look at if you look at those areas where we know they are, where, where we know we found the disease and the tests there, that prevalence you know, jumps up. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's still not outrageous. Uh, you know, there, there are places in Wisconsin where the prevalence in the tested, harvested male deer is approaching 50%. Or I'm sorry, it's over 50% at this time. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and we don't have that prevalence anywhere in the state. So yeah, it's, it's still relatively low. But you have to you have to look at sort of where the where the disease has been found in that in that focus of it. And that's that's one of the problems with this disease. It's kind of a it, it occurs in clusters, and so finding it and testing it around there is very important. Yeah. Okay. Uh, let's do this. Let's. We do need to work in a quick break here. We'll come back. There's still uh, a lot more I want to get into. So are you guys uh, cool to stick around for a few more minutes? Sure. Excellent. And that segment brought to you by Lone Star Ag Credit. You know, land, it's the one thing they're not making anymore, but we all want it, right? I know I do. Whether that's for recreating, uh, you want to run cattle, hunting, fishing, just to get the hell out of the big city. Whatever the case, Lone Star Ag Credit has been helping its borrowers Make that dream a reality for over 100 years. They'll do the same for you. You can find them at LoneStarAgCredit.com. We'll be right back with more on CWD from Alan Kane and Dr. Bob Dittmar on the Lone Star Outdoor Show. Three rounds in the Cape McCallum. Hey guys, Cable here, and uh, I want to tell you about outdoor access. See, access is the one thing I hear hunters complaining about the most. They don't have a place to hunt, but they want to, right? Well, outdoor access is the solution to that problem. Think Uber, 
but for hunters. It's a membership-based program. It's only $9 a month, but it gives you access to a list of properties for uh, hunting whatever you want. You want to hunt deer one weekend? Great. You want to hunt ducks on another property the next? Fine. Turkey on another? You have dozens to choose from. And it's a lot less expensive than paying for a traditional 52-week lease. So if you're interested in basically what I call Uber for the outdoorsman, use the activation code Lone Star at checkout. Just go to OutdoorAccess.com. That's OutdoorAccess.com. And use my promo code Lone Star for 30% off your membership. That's OutdoorAccess.com. There was you and then the rest. That's the girl I'm thinking of. I still love you now and then. I love you now. That's the music of Josh Ritter. Love you now and then. Bringing us back on the Lone Star Outdoor Show. Cable Smith here with you today as always. Thank you for sharing a part of your week with me. I do appreciate it immensely. Truly, y'all are what make the world go around. My world anyway. So thank you, thank you, thank you. Um, we've still got Dr. Bob Dittmar, Texas Parks and Wildlife Chief Veterinarian, and Alan Kane, our Whitetail Program Leader, on the line today as we are breaking down CWD and its uh, potential impact on our whitetail herd. And to be fair, in some of the northern states that I'm going to bring up here, and as uh, Dr. Dittmar mentioned, even Wisconsin, CWD is very prevalent in some specific areas, right, of those states. And in Texas, however, we haven't seen that. So I don't know why the reason is. Uh, but we're going to dive into that here momentarily. And this segment, by the way, brought to you by Lone Star Beer, the national beer of Texas. Alan, uh, Dr. Dittmar, thank you guys very much for sticking around. I do appreciate it. Yeah, glad to. Sure, you're very welcome. Appreciate the opportunity to visit. Yeah, thank you. Um, so you mentioned Wisconsin before the break, Bob, a place that is, you know, it's known to be a CWD hotbed. They've got. I mean, if you look at a map of Wisconsin, it's everywhere. Um, you can, and you also can look at a place like, you know, Montana, where uh, in some of the more urban areas, they've got big CWD problems where those deer are, you know, living in close proximity to each other. Is Texas testing with more with greater frequency than, than a place like uh, Montana or Wisconsin? Or do you guys have any information? Uh, do the state wildlife agencies share this information with each other? What is like from a national perspective? How is everyone working together, or are they? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, yeah, a lot of the data does get shared. Uh, some states are testing at a at a much higher level than others. Um, there, there's not really, and that's uh, one of the things I, I think is in the works that we we have a better way of sharing data uh-huh. and and information like that, but. Uh, yeah, we do share it. It's just not, you know, it's it's. There's not a formal sharing of it. I guess I should say. Okay. Okay. Um, well, so it, Texas has more whitetail than any other state, and yet we have a lower percentage of positive tests compared to, you know, um, we'll take Montana again for example, where they just had their first uh, positive test in a free-ranging elk here recently. So, 
I guess that's what I'm trying to figure out is what frequency we're testing compared to them, but I don't guess that data is readily available, Alan. No, and I don't think it's fair to compare, you know, each state, how much they're testing. Um, Mm -hmm. Obviously that if you test very little, the chances of finding disease, you know, especially if it's a very low prevalence, it's obviously much lower. And so the more you test, the, if it's out there on the landscape, the, the higher the probability you're going to uh, find it out there in that population that you're sampling. But some states um, sample a lot. Um, you know, Missouri, I think they collect 25,000 plus samples a year. Um, but they also have a very short deer season. And so in Texas, you know, logistically, just we've got a three, four month season when you add MLD in there. Uh, five-month season, so it uh, <clears throat> just the logistics of trying to sample and then the state as big as Texas. I mean, we uh, we do, I think, a pretty good job. In fact, this year, uh, our staff had collected over 12,000 samples, which is uh, the highest sampling I think we've done in the last, or ever, but definitely the last several years when we've ramped up sampling. Mm. Um, now, how many positives did we positive. have in 2019? Um. I think it, I think I, I had the number at one point. It was like it's uh, twenty. Okay, and then I look it's at Montana, 20. and they have a hundred and nineteen in two thousand nineteen. So I'm just trying to like figure out what where the discrepancy is, if, because it seems to me like okay, a lot of people are pointing the finger at Texas right now, saying, "Oh, you guys are this CWD hotbed. Um, you're a threat to our cervid herds going forward." And I'm just like. Uh, Something's not adding up. So I guess maybe Texas Parks and Wildlife is doing a damn good job of making sure that this thing isn't spreading. I mean, that's what the staff is telling me. And I think to be fair, you know, Montana, I don't know their testing history, but if they weren't testing very much, then they ramped it up in the last couple of years, especially with the concerns from the spread of the disease around Wyoming. They're seeing it increase and uh, distribution where they're finding CBD in Wyoming being a bordering state that may have ramped up their sampling in Montana and then if it's been there a while they they're starting to detect it and mm-hmm. uh, and it may be and that may be indication it's been on that landscape uh, a much longer time than than what they were thinking and, and obviously there's more positives but you just you never know until you really dig into their sampling efforts mm-hmm. and um in Texas, I just—I mean, Bob uh, can speak to this as well. But I think we've done a, as good a job as we can do, um, you know, with the the resources we have, not only on the free-ranging hunter-harvested deer that uh, that our staff are collecting samples from, but also the the captive industry. You know, in Texas, they're sampling. It's not like they're not doing anything. I mean, there's requirements we have CUD. Uh, sampling rules in place uh, for facilities if they want to maintain movement qualified status or, you know, if they have mortalities that occur in the pen, there's some testing requirements that go along with that. As there should uh, be, some stringent ones. I mean, and I think that those breeders, the ones that I've talked to, uh, they don't want CWD spreading. They don't want it in their facility, and they sure don't want it spreading outside of that. I mean, who would want that, right? So um, from a compliance standpoint, I think they're generally pretty happy to to offer up those, uh, the you know, to comply with the testing that you guys have, 
have mandated. Certainly. I mean, uh, go ahead, Bob. Go ahead. You're doing a good job. <laughs> no, I was just going to say that the, the, the folks with captive facilities out there, I mean, you hit the nail on the head. Okay, well, they don't want the disease in their facility, and, the, and if they unlucky to have it, you know, we only have a few facilities, um, but they're, they're not, not wanting to spread it. And so mm-hmm. testing requirements are important, and, and folks comply. I mean, they try to do a good job, and, um, and I think we've got pretty good um, testing requirements in place there. And Bob can speak to this. Um, you know, some of these captive facilities are under herd plans, and as part of those plans, they may have more stringent requirements. Um, you know, these areas where we have positives uh, in these captive facilities, they are under herd plans, so they may have more stringent requirements than what the rules are for somebody that's not a, in a, has a breeder facility that's not in the uh, not in the positive facility or not in the CWD zone there. And, uh, and in fact, some of these facilities have been uh, completely depopulated, uh, which is a good thing. So Yeah, well, I mean, Texas Parks and Wildlife doesn't mess around. When there's a positive, I mean, that gets the wheels spinning, and ultimately that facility is depopulated. I mean, I think there's been – of all these positives that have occurred in captive situations, I think there's like 120. How many, how many facilities were involved? I don't want people to think, oh, that's 120 positives from, uh, you know, 79 different facilities. It's like five or six, right? Yeah, it's a total of five. Five. Four of have now been depopulated. So. Four and four have been, okay, the herds have been wiped out. You guys like to use the word depopulated. I'll just call it with, with all the deer have been killed in those places. Uh, as you know, and, and I'm sure that they're, and Alan, you can answer this. Um, do you feel that there's still leftover resentment from the breeder community as to how things were handled, i.e. those herds being euthanized? Uh, I don't know, Cable. Um, I mean... Uh, well, you see the public like uh, comments and stuff. Do you, I mean, is that something yeah. that you guys feel? like, or Is there resentment from that, that community? We, no, I think the, the captive servant community as a whole, I think they're supportive of the testing in, in, in the... You know the way state the Parks and Wildlife handle and and Texas Animal Health Commission handled the process. Um, obviously, there was when CBD was found in, in captive facilities in, in 2015. Um, that was a shock because the first time that it happened in Texas. Mm-hmm. And I think you know folks were concerned, but after we got through that initial uh, discovery and work with the breeder community and Texas Animal Health Commissions and our different partners to set up good rules and put them in place. And then knowing these other these captive facilities under herd plans um, that we can manage the disease. I think people today, the majority, I'll say that, and I think the organizations out there um, are supportive of the rules. Is there individuals out there that uh, may have some heartburn? Certainly, but you have that with anything. I mean, mm-hmm. uh, it's like Carter Smith says, and when you're talking about deer management, it's general philosophy. We got a million deer hunters in Texas, and there's a million opinions on how to manage deer. It's right. not going to make everybody happy, but I think for the most part, the industry uh, has come around a, a long ways, and they understand the significance and importance of, of keeping this disease at bay and contained where it is. Um, like you said earlier, they, they don't want it any more than anybody else does. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, Bob, why do you think CWD hasn't been detected in East Texas yet? 
Mm, that's a good question. Um, I mean, we we have sort of felt like uh, in West Texas and the Panhandle that it probably crossed our borders from our neighboring states. Mm-hmm. Um, as of this time, it has not been found uh, basically in those states on the on our borders on on that side of the state. So I think that you know could be a factor. Uh, we had pretty robust testing in East Texas, uh, so um, I, I uh, that's you know kind of back to the question Alan just answered about support. That's one of the problems that that we have is just the, a lot of the unknowns we have about this disease. So it's hard for people to comprehend it, and so they tend to naturally be a little resentful of things when it's hard to understand how things take place. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, I I don't I don't have an answer for you other yeah. than to speculate that uh, it it uh, is not at a high prevalence in those neighboring states and has walked across the, the border. Uh-huh. So like looking at a national positive testing map here, um, like just looking at it, it's very clear that this is more prevalent in colder climates. Do you, and so I don't know. I'm obviously that's why I'm having you guys on, but. Do you think there's anything to the fact that maybe CWD just uh, isn't as prevalent in warmer climates? Bob, I, I uh, yeah, I, I don't, I don't have any data to substantiate that one way or the uh-huh. other. Okay, I mean, well, I'm just looking at the map. I'm like, well, this, this is uh, because there's Colorado, kind of the epicenter of it, and it's gone both ways. But the farther south you go, the less prevalent it is. So, but cable, keep in mind that. You know, CBD was first recognized in, in Colorado in, in those research pens up there, and then you found it in Wyoming, and and it's been there a long time. Mm-hmm. And then it, you know, in Wisconsin, maybe it's always been there. Who knows? And so, whether it's there or not, it, the point is, it's been in those states a long time. To your point, some of those northern states for many years, and so, uh, you know, whether just over that time, if prevalence has grown, then um, it's probably going to be much higher up there. And then if it was recently in, introduced for however it was, but in some of these southern states, and it, you know, I hope it's not, but it could be 50 years from now, EV prevalence looks like it is up north. So this, it's it's an unknown, mm-hmm. but uh, just keep in mind those states up north have had, a lot of them have had CBD for a long time. Fair point. Um, Alan, we recently had a positive free-range test near Valverde. I think it was in a whitetail. And I think it's a fair question because, you know, we've talked about how those captive herds have been euthanized. Why doesn't Texas Parks and Wildlife come in and wipe out the herd in that area? That's a good question. Um, I think, in part, we need to get a handle on you know, the distribution, the prevalence of that disease in the media era. Keep in mind, we just had this positive pop-up this fall in uh, just out of Del Rio. It's uh, in an area that's um, close, relatively close to town between the lake and, and town there. And so we just don't know. We didn't have a lot of sampling there. Mm-hmm. And so before we rush in there and say we need to kill everything, which may may or may not be the right response, we need to get a handle on um, the disease itself, how big an area we're talking about, uh, is it just a few deer, and then come up with a plan. Um, but the thing is, I think important to, to mention, though, if 
CWD is in a free-ranging population and it's already established, um, you know, lowering that density is helpful, but just wiping everything out may not solve the problem, especially if the environment's already contaminated, the prions are out there in the soil. Over time, as other deers come back in there, you know, they could pick it up. And mm-hmm. so, um, you know, at that point, the real management strategy is containment to keep it where it is, um, which there's, you know, different ways you can work on that from our current rules, which have carcass movement restrictions and movement restrictions on live animals and mandatory testing there. And so as we get a better handle on this, I think we evaluate um, what options, management options are available. Uh, mm-hmm. Well, from my perspective, if TPWD really thought CWD was this end game that uh, I, I think you guys would just go in there and wipe them out. So to me, it's just like, yeah, is it a problem? A big one. Yes, monitor it, but uh, I, I just don't see it as this. I, I see these people pointing their finger at Texas and, and ragging on us because there's high fences. And, and you told me something interesting, Alan, um, in a previous conversation that a lot of these fences might have helped actually stop the spread of the disease. Yeah, um, you know, fences, well, in the example we were talking about it in in that zone in south central Texas there in Medina County, there's lots of high fences. Um, and where CBD was discovered, some of these captive facilities, you know, they have associated release sites with their high fence. And if you look across regards of those positive facilities, there's lots of high fence ranches. And if you look from north to south or east to west in that zone, and if I'm a deer, if I'm trying to go from the top to the bottom or east west, I'd have a hard time doing it in a straight line. Mm-hmm. And and you could make the argument um, that in those cases, in that instance, those fences, the number of fences around there help limit movement um, of these free-ranging deer. Um, and so maybe that's a that helps us to contain the disease in that area. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> fences aren't in impervious i mean deer get through them red deer elk all those sorts of things go through those fences but if it slows movement or it keeps deer uh you know in that general area within that zone or makes it more difficult to travel then maybe it's easier to manage there um Mm. and so it you know in those cases i think it helped uh in that particular situation it probably helped keep that disease within the zone i mean we hadn't seen anything outside the zone which is good um over this since 2015 so almost five years um of, of testing over there and we haven't found it outside the the surveillance zone yet and so that's a good thing and maybe those fences are playing a role to help contain it there hmm. yeah talk about in, as far as the removing or, or decreasing the population there's a couple things we uh, we need to remember, first off, Texas is a private land state, and and we need the cooperation of landowners to implement our our plan, which is basically early detection and containment. And and those kind of practices have been tried in other states, and they they have not necessarily failed because they don't work, but they haven't been very successful because they didn't have landowner and hunter support. And, and so we've sort of taken the approach of we're going to try to detect the disease early and contain it and, and, and do that by uh, increased testing and, and limiting the movement of deer out of that area, whether it be live deer or carcass parts. 
uh, that, that potentially could be infected. So we, we've kind of taken a little more moderate approach to that. And, uh, and uh, again, we, we, we need landowner support to implement any kind of program like that. Well, and that was where I was going to say next is the fences aren't coming down. I mean, that ship sailed in Texas for, you know, good, bad, or worse, whatever. Uh, the high fences are here to stay. They're only going to continue to go up. So I think, personally, it really pisses me off when I see one hunter um, vilifying another one for the way that they do things. And and it's solely based on, let's be honest, where you were born, <laughs> if you were born out west, then high fences are uh, an enigma that you don't really understand. And for a lot of Texas people that haven't hunted out west, they, they might not understand that. I like to do it all. I don't knock someone else for the way that they do it. And I just think at this point in time, uh, there is a real a real threat. It's not CWD. It's uh, the animal rights movement, uh, anti-hunting movement, and the fact that we're losing hunter recruitment every year. It's going down. Our numbers are dwindling. So when I see people trying to divide the hunting community, it really I just don't have any any patience for that at all. To your point, I, I, you know, obviously um, uh, there's a lot of management privileges in Texas that that we enjoy. High fences are one of them. And uh, as a department, I mean, we're not here to pass judgment on that one way or the other. We're right. here to uh, uh, do what we can to protect the resource. Mm-hmm. Alan, I recently saw one state, I can't remember if it was Missouri, I think it was, uh, but that's here nor there. The landowners um, tried to sue the state, I think the state wildlife agency, to get the animals, uh, to, be, to deem the animals private property. Basically, they wanted full control of the the white-tailed deer, and they lost. Uh, the landowners did, and, I, and I'm personally glad that they did, um, because whether <laughs> whether an animal is behind a fence or not, if it's a native species, that that is property of the people of the state of Texas. At least it is here. Uh, so it doesn't. You guys don't really care whether there's a fence or not. No, uh, we don't. And, and to be clear, as you said that. The, regardless of the fence type out there, the wildlife, the native wildlife in Texas belongs to the people, and so it's a public resource. And so, folks that have high fences still have to abide by and follow the same harvest regulations that somebody that's hunting on low fence country. Um, and those deer are still a public resource. You can't just pick them up and move them and sell them and do whatever you want without. Uh, you know, you can't do any of that. You have to abide by the the rules that the that the agency has, and uh, and then high fencing, just to, for folks to understand, is that that has nothing to do with the Texas Parks and Wildlife Department. That's a, a private property rights issue. Uh, that's a state statute. That's in law. And so, um, you know, whether a person can put up a high fence or not, it has nothing to do with the agency. But when it comes to the wildlife resource, it, it is a public resource, and and uh, regards to fence type. All right, we do need to work in a quick break. That segment of the presentation proudly brought to you by All Seasons Feeders and Blinds. Spring's almost here, and if you've got a stock pond full of bass, crappie, catfish, whatever, you need to take care of those fish, and you need the damn fish feeder. You put the damn fish feeder on your damn dam, and you feed your damn fish. It's that easy. You can find it at allseasonsfeeders.com. When we come back, we'll wrap up the CWD conversation, put a nice fat bow on it, <laughs> here with Dr. Bob Dittmar and Alan Kane of Texas Parks and Wildlife. You're listening to the Lone Star Outdoor Show. It'll be something to see. 
Hey y'all, Chris Letzinger, online sales manager at Cinnamon Creek Ranch here, reminding you we're not your typical archery club. We're a one-of-a-kind archery facility with indoor and outdoor ranges, full pro shop, and six different 3D courses. Cinnamon Creek was designed by hunters for hunters. Located in Roanoke, Texas, we have over 200 3D targets to hone your archery skills. Call 817-439-8998 or visit us at cinnamoncreekranch.com to visit our new online store. That's cinnamoncreekranch.com. Live Oak Outdoors offers some of the best waterfowl hunting in the Central Flyway, hunting over 2,000 acres of cut rice along the coast that attracts wintering geese by the tens of thousands. Hunts take place out of layout blinds or white parkas over a spread of 1,500 decoys. It's also common to shoot pintail and other puddle ducks in the goose spread. Professional guides make sure you have a safe and memorable hunt of a lifetime. They're based out of El Campo, Texas. Check them out at liveoakoutdoors.com or you can book your hunt by calling Chris Slimp at 832-466-9646. Cable Smith, welcome everybody back to the Lone Star. Your show, Latin Calvary. One of my favorites there. I'm actually taking the missus to New York City next weekend for Valentine's Day to see Flatland Calvary and William Clark Green. At a, uh, a tiny venue. She has no idea, by the way, but hell, she doesn't listen to the show, so <laughs> I don't think any of y'all are going to tell her. Yeah. Why would a fella who like shuns New York and California take his old lady up to the Big Apple? Well, truth be told, she used to live there for three years while we were dating uh, out of college when she started out in nursing. So uh, she still loves New York, and I'm going to take one for the team and surprise her take her up there and i get to see flatland calvary and william clark green so win-win um we are still visiting with dr bob ditmar and alan kane of texas parks and wildlife concerning all things chronic wasting disease we'll get back into that momentarily but first this segment brought to you by rustic reminders taxidermy josh and becky gunther have been taking care of all of my trophy mounts for dang near a decade now they do amazing work with fast turnaround time and they actually answer the phone when you call imagine that a taxidermist not trying to dodge your phone calls <laughs> check them out you can find them at gr the number eight mounts.com well uh, let's get back into it here with bob and alan as we wrap up today's cwd conversation the other thing cable is we wouldn't be where we are today without the hunters and landowners out there that bring deer in voluntarily and let us sample those. We've got to have that support, as Bob mentioned, even if it's we're talking about strategies to depopulate a you know a part of an area, you know, free range deer. We still need landowner support. We need it most importantly each year when folks harvest deer to bring them in when they see our biologists at the check stations or the locker plant, let us pull a sample. That's how early detection is critical. And that's not going to happen without hunters and landowners out there mm-hmm. um, helping us out. Well, someone on Facebook, uh, I, I put it out there that you guys were going to be on and, and I opened up the floor for their questions. And one person did want to know if there's, uh, if they voluntarily want to bring a deer in, can they get it tested for free outside of a CWD zone? 
Yeah, yeah, you bet. yeah. We we uh, they're all you know. If we we collect the sample, we submit them, and it's it's there's no charge to the hunter. Okay. Perfect. If we if we submit it now, they can also submit a sample on their own, but they will have to pay the lead fee here. But it, uh, they just need to get in contact with the local biologist um, uh, to collect a sample, and uh, you can go to our website and Google find a wildlife biologist, and they can they can find the nearest biologist to you. Uh, or uh, there's some folks around the state who are. Uh, who have been uh, trained and certified to collect CWD samples through Texas Animal Health Commission. Uh, there's a listing of those people on the Animal Health Commission website. Uh, there are taxidermists and deer processors around the state that can do that, that are in, in that program and can do that as well. Perfect. Great information there. When there is a positive, a free-range positive, what measures are put in place for hunters when they're harvesting deer in that area? Is it, are there mandatory uh, check stations there? Walk us through that process of what you guys do at that point. Yeah, so if it's a if it's a new pot a new area, mm-hmm. brand new pause, and we'll use um, that Val Verde County as an example. Um, we're going to, you know, once we confirm the positive, um, we're going to get an idea of, of where it is, uh, maybe how much sampling's going on there that we already have. And then evaluate the area and um, establish some CWD zones. So that's going to be a containment zone and surveillance zone. And they have certain restrictions there. As far as a hunter's concerned, um, the requirements are the same whether you're in a containment or surveillance zone. But those zones are generally during hunting season going to have a check station. If not more than uh, one, it could be two or three sometimes. But uh, at least a check station within the zone and then hunters that harvest a deer are required to bring that to the zone uh, to have it tested within 48 hours. Um, mm-hmm. And then, uh, and like Bob mentioned earlier, our staff will pull CWD sample and then send it off. And we give the hunter a little uh, check station or a little CWD receipt, and they can go online and check uh, the results of their positive. Not, I'm sorry, the results of their sample um, yeah. that we collected over, you know, two, three weeks later and uh, and find out what's going on there. The other thing is that there will be carcass movement restrictions in place. Uh, that's just part of the rules that go along when the zone is established. And so uh, there's certain parts that you can't take out of the zone, um, you know, the spinal cord, the brain, things like that. Mm. Um, the entrails, the you know, you can take out quartered, uh, or quartered carcasses, um, the hind quarters, shoulders, back strap, that sort of thing. Um, and then uh, cut, and, cut and wrap meat, you could take that out of a zone. Um, or a skull plate, you know, things like that, clean skulls that uh, you're taking back to house. Or if you're taking a head to taxidermist um, somewhere, you can get a head waiver at our check station to do that as long as it goes to the check, uh, taxidermist and then they dispose of unused parts in a, uh, a top one landfill. Um, but so that's what we do is just establish those zones and, uh, primarily, uh, and that's what the hunter's going to, uh, experience there is as far as restrictions as carcass movement and, and mandatory testing there. And then those zones for captive facilities within those zones, there's movement restrictions on, uh, 
where they can do, bring deer in and uh, or turn deer out. Um, there's restrictions there too. And then, and so if we find a positive, you know, uh, the other thing we'll do, whether it's Bob or myself or uh, somebody else in the big game program, we'll call the hunter that that may have harvested positive and visit with them. Um, and if they want to get rid of the the meat, uh, then we'll certainly do that. We'll pick it up and dispose of it in the landfill. Um, and we generally notify the landowner and let them know what's going on. Um, mm. But it doesn't necessarily change anything. Um, it's far as you know what goes on on that property or you know what the hunter has to do we we just let them know hey you know if there was a positive we let them know and then uh, like we said uh, some folks uh, want to get rid of the, the meat and others uh, have chosen to, to keep it yeah there's no confirmed case of a cwd being transmitted to a human up to this point so um would I personally keep the meat? No, but I'm not going to eat a duck with rice breast either. So uh, that's just my personal take on it. Well, fascinating stuff today, guys. I, I really do appreciate the time, um, and I appreciate everything that, that Texas Parks and Wildlife is doing, both uh, free range and in the uh, the captive facilities, uh, to make sure that, that this disease stays contained um, and monitored I mean, you guys are doing a great job, and, and I appreciate all the uh, information that is out there for the public, which all these positive tests um, are, are readily available. You can look at where they occurred, the date, uh, I think the sex of the animal, the, the species, whether it was an elk or uh, a deer, uh, Alan, all that's available right there on the on the website. Yeah, on our homepage on the uh, right-hand side, you'll see a little link to CWD, and you can click on that, and it takes it to the CWD page, and you can find all the information uh, about chronic waste disease in Texas there. Perfect. Dr. Dittmar, Allen, uh, thanks so much for jumping on. Certainly appreciate it. Yeah, we yeah. appreciate the opportunity. Evidence. We appreciate you getting information out. Absolutely. It's sure. been a pleasure. You guys take care. Uh, sounds good, Cable. All right. There they go. Dr. Bob Dittmar, Chief Veterinarian for Texas Parks and Wildlife, as well as Alan Kane, our longtime friend and whitetail program leader. Um, so, yeah, to sum it up, I, you know, one thing I would I wish I would have asked Bob, Dr. Dittmar, is if he had to rank the diseases, um, CWD, EHD, blue tongue, anthrax, where would CWD fall on that list as far as a threat to our whitetail herd? I imagine probably behind EHD. Uh, certainly just because of how prevalent it is, because anthrax requires like ideal conditions, which like maybe occur once a decade, right? It's dormant in the soil. We've talked about it on a previous episode, but uh, it seems like CWD can lie dormant in the soil, but just based off of how widespread it is, uh, certainly more of a threat than, than I would say anthrax. Um, but the purpose of this conversation today was to get the facts out there. And to be frank, uh, my personal belief is, yeah, CWD is a bad deal. It is a threat, but Texas Parks and Wildlife manages it. These facilities that do breed deer or release deer are strictly managed. And, uh, you know, the trend isn't going to go the other way, folks. I mean, whether you like that or not. It's like beating a dead horse. So what is all of this crying about CWD going to do? Because the fences aren't coming down. People are not going to be forced 
into you know stopping their breeding operations. Um, I just it, it to me it's just divisive and makes no sense. So whether you agree with it or not, and I'll be the first one to say no trophy that I've ever taken means as much to me as the ones that are taken free range. And I have shot axis deer. I've even shot whitetail in a high fence. Not kick and shoot operations. I'm talking about thousands of acres. Um, and you know what's ethical as a hunter. If you show up and <laughs> there's a 20-acre pen with a 300-inch deer walking around in it, and someone says, smoke him, well, hold up. This isn't this isn't ethical. This isn't right. Why would anyone partake in that activity? But unfortunately, and here's another interesting point, is that those 20-acre pens are lumped into the same group and vilified in the same manner as a 1,000-acre ranch that happens to have a fence on it. The damn deer don't know there's a fence there. They don't care. They're wild. So that is the fundamental flaw with just lumping all high fences into the same category, which is what is being done. Uh, my take on it anyway. Uh, unfortunately, we are out of time. Got to go. Got to get out of here. Thanks to Dr. Dittmar and Alan, as well as our other guests today, uh, Aaron Geddes and Tyler Terrell. We will be back with a brand new show next week. Thanks to all of our sponsors for making this one possible. Thanks to you, the listener, for being a part of today's presentation. Until next time, I'm Cable Smith saying, y'all have a great week in the outdoors. Wolf was scratching at my door, Lordy, don't you hear that lonesome wind blow? Tell me, baby, why you've been gone so long?